Hello, my name is Artemis Fotiado, and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Taylor Sherman to discuss her forthcoming book called Nehru's India, Seven Myths. We focus particularly on the myth of socialism in India under Nehru in the 1950s and 1960s, a socialism which is often assumed was modelled on that of the Soviet Union, when in reality it was shaped by the experience of colonialism and the national movement. I asked Taylor to start by highlighting some of the key ways in which the experience of British rule impacted India. What did Britain do over the course of 200 years rule in India? Well, okay, they set up institutions, they set up law courts, they set up uh, eventually legislative assemblies. That's quite important because we know that India after 1947 is a democracy. But they also systematically used India's economy for the benefit of Britain. Take the question of labor. When slavery was abolished in the British Empire, then there was a need for cheap labor and India had what the British understood to be a surplus of labor. In other words, too many people uh, as the British saw it. And so Indian laborers were then sent, recruited and sent all across the empire to provide cheap labor when people of African origin were, were freed from slavery. Britain also extracted a lot of money directly from India. So the government of India was in debt to the government in London. I know it seems a bit strange to have one part of the empire in debt to the other, but this is how empire works. And every year they had to send money back from Delhi to London, uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds to pay for salaries of civil servants, pensions of civil servants, and those loans that Britain had given to India uh, for things like railways um, and other things. So India is massively in debt to Britain before the Second World War. Now, by the end of the Second World War, that, that debt relationship had swapped, but it's not, not quite so important because six years of a different fiscal relationship between Delhi and London can't undo 200 years of extracting wealth from the subcontinent to London. And then I think the final part has to do with industry. So, um, of course, the period under which, during which Britain ruled India was the period during which Britain had its Industrial Revolution. And the relationship that was set up between Britain and India was set up to favor British industry. And that meant, in the late 19th century, that meant low tariffs for British goods. So India had a very famous cloth industry. when. The British, when the English, as they were back in the 17th century, first went to India, they went there for its beautiful and valuable cloth. Um, and that industry was not entirely dismantled, but severely attenuated because of the imperial relationship. Britain set up tariffs so that British industry could export their goods to India. And what they took from India was unfinished products, cotton and things like that. So it, it's that classic imperial relationship where primary goods go from the colony to the metropole and finished goods go from the metropole to the colony, leaving India without an industrial base in 1947. There, were, there, there just wasn't as much industry as it might have had if Britain had never ruled over India. So it, India regarded itself as a poor country and it was regarded worldwide as a fairly poor country. Now, I just want to put a little modifier on that because yes, India was uh, by the step by the, in the terms that they used at the time underdeveloped, uh, and it was uh, a, re a poor country. It's true, but it was a poor country with some very rich people in it. 
It's not that everyone in, in, in India was poor. There were wealthy people in India. The people who had secured a relationship with the British imperial power tended to secure a lot of wealth for themselves. So landlords um, and people who cooperated with the British, high-level civil servants, these people did very well under the British and they did well not just socially but economically. So India in 1947 is a poor country but it's also a very unequal country because there are some very wealthy people in India. And 1947 is also the start of the Nehru era and the starting point of your book. What is the main problem that you have identified in which the book deals with? Jawaharlal Nehru was the first prime minister of India. He served India as prime minister between 1947 and 1964. So he's often regarded as the architect of independent India. And there are in the wider world and in amongst historians and scholars, people have come to speak of this period as the Nehruvian period, uh, assuming that all the ideas that come from the prime minister were somehow uh, uniformly and magically implemented across the whole of, of India. So he's, he's the architect, he built everything. And Nehruvian India then is associated with a number of kind of abstract nouns that um, that Nehru is strongly associated with. So secularism, uh, socialism, the non-aligned movement, uh, the establishment of democracy, the use of the administrative machinery of the state in a way that centralized power and a vision of modernization and modernism that are kind of foreign and imposed on India. So all these things are strongly associated with Nehru and the book actually begins to ask whether whether that's fair. Because nowadays you can kind of speak about Nehru and, and use all these terms about him and about his period without providing any proof. And when you actually look into the evidence, the historical evidence, things are much more interesting and more complicated, of course, than people often assume. And why has so much of the focus been on Nehru for so long, do you think? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I think, um, first of all, people like great men and they like histories of great men. That's not my personal disposition, um, but uh, publishers, uh, BBC editors, people who publish uh, trade trade books, they like biographies and they like great men. Why do we like these stories? We occasionally like great women too, by the way, only occasionally though. Um, why do we like these stories? Because I think following a person through history imbues that narrative with a sense of responsibility first of all, so that um, you can say this was somebody's idea and it went right or it went wrong and it was their fault, it was their success or their failure. And to attribute all of that to one person provides a simple historical narrative. And when you begin to look at uh, layers of responsibility and structures and institutions, it gets very complicated and, and there's, no, there's no villain and there are no heroes, really. And so we like that way of storytelling. Um, but the other, so I think that's a problem or um, a trait of, of history and of the way we speak about history more broadly. But for India in particular, the reason why Nehru gets so much credit is uh, he served for a long time. He was seven year, 17 years in office. He was also incredibly charismatic and he had a lot to say. But I think the most important reason why we focus so much on Nehru it has to do with the sources. Indian historical records, 
have not been opened up to the same extent. They don't exist to the same extent or they existed, but they were never transferred into archives or their archives aren't opened or they're not indexed or they've been lost or destroyed in various ways. And so we don't have, as historians, we don't have the sources that we would normally have for say this period in British history or French history. And that's true for many um, post-colonial states. So what we do have, instead of all those nitty gritty day-to-day -day records about what's happening in the Ministry of Agriculture, <laughs> what we do have are Nehru's speeches and his letters. And they've been published in a series of volumes called the Selected Works of Jawaharlal Nehru, um, series two. I think there might be 70 or 80 volumes now. Uh, and that's that's a huge resource. And more than just being a resource, they've now been put online. They're not text searchable, so it makes it not quite so easy to access. But when you have such a big resource that feels, and it, I mean, if you open these letters, they cover, if you open these volumes, the letters and the speeches cover everything. I mean, he's, he's inaugurating modernist buildings. He's talking about cow slaughter. He's celebrating festivals, he's advocating non-alignment. He really does cover everything and, and you can spend your entire academic career looking at these volumes. And so Nehru's voice is the loudest and we attribute so much to him because of this source that we have. And okay, there are other sources in India, there are other people's private papers, but Nehru's dominate. And how do you address this issue of sources? What material is the book based on? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, so I think one, one thing that historians have done over the past 10 years or so is begun to uh, uncover different archival sources. We look beyond the official archives. So let me tell you that when I, when I have been to either national or state level archives, when uh, often I order a file, they tell me the file exists. I, the file is delivered to me several hours later and I open it and it, it, it's sometimes just empty. It's just a little slip of paper in there with the name of the file and the file number. And so I've had to look beyond official records, as have other people, and beyond official archives. Um, so what historians have done for quite some time is rely on British and American official archives, so the Foreign and Commonwealth Office archives or American State Department archives. I do that a tiny bit. I've also turned to non-official archives. And the, actually, the, the greatest resource that I have is right under my own nose at the LSE. Um, because the London School of Economics had a long history with India. The, the school was founded with an interest to take an interest in good governance across the world, and that meant across the empire in 1895 when LSE was founded. And then when the empire began to become independent states, LSE maintained an interest in following the governance of these states. And India had a kind of Fabian socialist tilt to it, so there's another reason why the LSE, which also had elements of Fabian socialism by in the 1940s and 50s was interested in India. So the LSE library has an amazing resource, an amazing collection of government documents. Now, they're not uh, private documents, they're mostly published reports, but when Indian civil servants wrote reports about what was happening in India, they were surprisingly candid surprisingly detailed. And so that's my, my the body, probably 60% of my research comes from the LSE collections. I now want to focus a bit more on one of the myths that you cover in the book, um, that of socialism. Uh, how influential was British rule in shaping this uh, ideological context of the Nehru era, especially the early part? Was there an element of wanting to do things completely differently or even the opposite to what the British had done? Yes, I think that 
the colonial relationship was very important to the way Indians planned what they want to do, wanted to do after the end of that relationship. And so uh, if British rule had impoverished India, that was widely agreed and accepted in 1947, and British rule had attenuated and harmed Indian industry, then the leaders of independent India wanted to reverse that. They wanted to make India wealthy, they wanted to increase its GDP, um, and they also wanted to increase its industrial base, that is true. British rule had also seen massive famines in India, so as particularly in the 19th century, uh, in the final decades of the 19th century, there, there were widespread famines, uh, in, especially in uh, the Deccan area and what is now Maharashtra. And then again, in 1943, there was a huge famine in Bengal during the Second World War. So British rule had literally starved Indian people and the government of independent India wanted to reverse that and make sure nobody was ever hungry again. So there were a lot of things that they wanted to exactly do the opposite of. And the other thing that they wanted to do, whereas the British had rewarded those who cooperated, uh, landlords and, and administrators, they had rewarded them with wealth. The national movement had promised that everybody would benefit from an independent India. So it wouldn't just be collaborators, as they were called, um, and the wealthy who would benefit from the development that India would have in the, after, in the 1940s and 50s, but everyone would no longer be hungry. That was the main promise. You would, you would have uh, roti kapra, bread and, and clothes. When we talk about socialism in the 50s and the 60s especially, we think of certain policies and mechanisms like nationalization. Was this important in India? Yeah, so I think when we say socialism, we have a distorted idea of socialism and our understanding of socialism has been shaped, ironically, by American neoliberal vehemently anti-communist, anti-socialist ideologues. And so in making their case for capitalism, they have shaped our idea of what socialism and communism is. And so, for example, we think, and, and their idea of communism and socialism, because they conflate the two, has, is shaped around what happened in the Soviet Union and what happened in China. To a, to a lesser extent, a little bit. But when it comes to nationalization, of course, the Soviets nationalized all their industry, and they tried to command and control as much of the economy as possible. Well, that is not how socialism worked in India. Uh, there was never an attempt to try to control the whole of the economy. So perhaps the most famous planner, so India had plans, five-year plans, just as the Soviet Union had five-year plans. Uh, but so did Pakistan. They had five-year plans, and Pakistan is not known as a bastion of socialism in the in the 40s and 50s. Uh, they knew that they couldn't collectivize land, for example. They they weren't willing to chuck all the landlords out. They weren't willing to collect to gather peasants into collectives and force them to work together as they had in China. Most of the economy is not controlled by the state. They nationalize in the 50s. What do they nationalize? They nationalize uh, bus networks. So you have uh, standardization of bus, bus routes, you have standardization of bus stations. I'm told you even have the standardization of the kind of snacks 
that you can have at a bus station in India. And that kind of epitomizes all the all the scaremongering ideas about socialism, right? Oh my gosh, they have so much control over everything that it snacks. But that's one of the only sectors that they nationalize. Um, and they, uh, they actually don't nationalize it at the national level, they bring it under state control in each state in India. Uh, and then what else do they what else do they nationalize in the late 1950s they nationalize most of the electricity sector but they leave the most profitable bits uh, around Mumbai for example they leave those in the hands of private operators so the state takes on the unprofitable bits of, of electrification of India and private sector electricity producers get to keep the most profitable bits. So nationalization is a very small part of what India calls socialism in the 1950s and 60s. So what about the rest of the economy then? Was that completely privatized? Yeah, so what's interesting is you have um, you have a state-run sector. So the state does own some steel plants, but they don't exclusively, they don't nationalize all the other steel plants, right? Um, and, and the state runs some things. But in India, you don't so much talk about the private sector. It's what they call the informal sector. In other words, the bit, and what, what does it mean to be informal? It means to be a, a part of the economy that is not governed by legislation for the most part. So factory acts, which provide for safety and maternity cover and um, insurance and all those things that are important for the welfare of workers, don't apply to the informal sector. Mm -hmm. So even if you have industry, if it's small little small little mm -hmm. shops making bicycle parts where there's just a few people in the mm -hmm. shop, that is in the informal sector in India in the 1950s. For the most part, there are some big mm -hmm. bicycle manufacturers that are in the formal mm -hmm. sector, but the informal sector mm -hmm. is vast. And and yes, it's private, but it's called informal because it's not mm -hmm. it's not it's not really governed. So what was Indian socialism about then? Yeah, so this is really, I think, gets to the heart of the matter um, in that Indian socialism is not really about state control of the economy. Why? Because the state doesn't have the money to control everything. They don't have the money to, um, to nationalize industries, but they also don't have, they, they feel at the time they don't have the administrative expertise to nationalize anything. There's also no popular will to nationalize everything. So what do they do instead? Instead, they try to encourage everyone to participate in developmental activities. Uh, and those developmental activities take the form primarily in the countryside and then later in urban areas, they take the form of, um, two, they take two forms really. They take the form of community development, whereas they, when they, which is where they ask a group of villagers to come up with a plan to grow more food in their village. What do they need? What do they ask the villagers? What do you need? And, and can we help you help yourself to get that? And mostly villagers, it's a somewhat problematic and very interesting program, community development, which has been written about by a, an author called Daniel Immerbar. Um, but mostly villagers say, we need roads, we need wells, um, we need irrigation channels. And then they build that themselves. And the government provides a little bit of expert advice, but not a whole lot. And so that is, and. People might see that as a kind of um, a weird append appendage of, of pure socialism, which is really about state control of heavy industry. But actually, my argument is that that is Indian socialism. When they ask Indians to build 
their own village in a new way that is indian socialism and they call uh, the leader of community development the guy who overruns it is a guy called sk day the guy who he doesn't overrun it the guy who runs community development is called sk day and he calls that socialism in india the second aspect of socialism in india has to do with industry and, and what we would call private industry so larger um, factories producing things what are they supposed to do they are asked to produce and contribute to the economy in a way that also looks after the rights of workers. So you have in the 50s and 60s, a real push towards corporate welfare. You have uh, both, both the, the few state-run industries and also private industries building small townships for the workers that work in those factories. And they provide parks and they provide housing and they provide schooling for their own workers, and they also are supposed to provide uh, maternity cover so far as there are women uh, who are who are working there, and insurance and uh, help some health health coverage if they're injured at work, and all that corporate what we now call corporate welfare was understood at the time in India as socialism. Now, did it mean all the private sector industries did that? There are some very famous examples. So, uh, in Jamshedpur, the the Tata Iron and Steel Company built Jamshedpur, a whole a whole town, for the workers of its steel mill. So, there are some famous examples of people doing that. And then there are lots and lots of private sector companies that don't bother to do that. Uh, but that is how what what Nehru when he spoke to Indian business he said make yourself part of the plan look at what we want to do and and find a way to contribute he wasn't telling them what to do he was asking them to find a way to contribute which is an exact corollary to what he was asking villagers what community development was asking villagers to do find a way to contribute and that that self-help socialism was Indian socialism at the time that's very interesting. Why do we see this different model of socialism in India compared to its neighboring countries? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And um, I, it has to do with the way India achieved independence, in my view. So under the Indian National Congress and a few smaller political parties, the Muslim League being the most prominent one, India achieved independence by mobilizing large numbers of people, getting them all to agree on a program. Let's all agree that we want the British out. Let's all agree that we're going to get the British out non-violently as far as possible. Uh, let's all agree that the way to do that is to picket, um, to picket British businesses, to burn cloth, to um, drop out of school. And there's this agreed program which is formulated in a democratic way. The Indian National Congress was a democratic organization and it was an organization that was a mass movement or a series of mass movements. And so they had a history of, of collective action, which had you know it had hierarchies and um factions as they were called it was not a perfect democracy it was not this kind of um ideal democracy but it was it was always democratic in a messy kind of way and so when india achieved independence in 1947 it was and that was a great achievement of the national movement and they looked upon their achievement and thought let's replicate this let's let's shift this national movement into a post-colonial nationalism uh redirect these energies which were aimed uh, against the british let's redirect them towards nation building let's gather everyone together let's let's try to reconcile competing interests 
um, and and move forward by consensus because we've done that before and we we had great achievements on that model. So so why change it? What about external influences then? Uh, where did they look for that? Was it more the West uh, than the Soviet Union? Okay, so this is a big like Cold War question, right? So who influenced who influenced uh, Nehru the most is the question. Wasn't he a secret socialist and didn't he lean towards the Soviet Union? And didn't he have um, pretty unpleasant relationships with American presidents until Kennedy came along? Well, Nehru isn't everyone. Mahalanobis, for example, the main author of the second plan, which started in 1956, he consulted experts from around the world Dozens and dozens of experts flew in from everywhere to, to look at his plan, to look at India and to see what was possible. And he, he sort of, like, like any good researcher, he took in a lot of information and he decided with the other planners what would be the best approach. So did India look to the Soviet Union and China? Yes. They sent delegations to the Soviet Union to look at um, parts of their industry and to look at their agriculture. They also sent delegations to China to do the same thing. And by and large, these delegations write reports and these reports are available in the LSE library. And by and large, they conclude, wow, they're doing amazing things, but this is not possible in India because they have to rely on excessive violence to make this happen in the Soviet Union and China. So who are the major external influences um, in India? Well, I think, first of all, a lot of scholarship recently has pointed to the influence of the US. And even if the US and India had tense relations, it, the US needed and wanted India to not go communist. And so they sent a lot of money to India, especially not to build steel plants, um, as the Russian the Russians built one steel plant, to be fair, just one. <laughs> but um, the Americans helped fund um, agricultural reform in India. Um, but they also took advice from Germany, for example, uh, on shoemaking, interestingly, and a whole and um, car making, unsurprisingly, uh, and a lot of other uh, smaller industries. So it, India had a really ecumenical approach to to advice and to models that it would follow. And so I think it's not fair to to say India was either following the American or the Soviet model. It was doing its own thing, which was kind of a mishmash, really. And how did this approach translate into foreign policy, given the, the Cold War context? Very famously, um, Jawaharlal Nehru said India should not join either of the two big power blocks, shouldn't join the Soviet Union uh, and its Warsaw Pact style alliances, and it shouldn't join any of the American strategic alliances that the, that the US was building. So not not NATO, obviously, in the wrong part of the world for that, but not the Baghdad Pact, uh, which covered the Middle East and which Pakistan joined, and not CETO, Southeast, the Southeast Asian um, Treaty Organization, which was its collective security organization for Southeast Asia. Uh, Nehru didn't want to join all of the, any of those. It, he, he wanted to keep India truly independent because he thought these kind of power blocks were a recipe for future uh, conflict in the world. Now, there's a caveat here. Even though Nehru didn't join any of these organizations, India was born into the Western world. India had been part of the British Empire and the British Empire had a deep and complex relationship with the Americans. And it was a cultural and, and social and economic relationship. So for example, from the First World War, India's largest trading partner was not Britain, but America. And that 
means that remained the case in the 40s and 50s all the way through the Nehru years. So India traded most with the US. Uh, my favorite statistic has to do with aid because it's not a statistic, it doesn't involve any numbers. Uh, India received more aid from West Germany in the period between 47 and 64 than it did from the Soviet Union and much, much more from the US than it did from West Germany. So in terms of the economy, its number one trading partners are, are Western, Britain, the US, West Germany. Uh, in terms of aid, it receives much more aid from the US and West Germany. In terms of culture, it also is uh, already born into the Anglo-American cultural system because Britain had introduced English language education. And so just to give you an example, around 300 American films are released in India every year during this period. And they're, and they're pretty popular. They, they run for six weeks at a time every night in these famous cinemas in Mumbai, or what was then Bombay. And at the same time, the Soviets, uh, with the help of the Indian government, organized Soviet film festivals where about a dozen films are released each year. That imbalance in the film industry, which seems somewhat um, arbitrary and random, actually reflects the larger imbalance in India's economy. And my argument is that India was actually born aligned. And so although it didn't want to be aligned, although it's, it loudly professed it wanted not to join any of these strategic organizations, and it didn't, uh, it, it couldn't really extricate itself from this already existing economic, cultural, and probably political alignment with the West, because let's not forget that India also joined the, Br the British Commonwealth. Uh, so there's a kind of myth here of, of non-alignment. Non-alignment was something India wanted, but not something that it, it had in the Nehru years. So how popular were the Nehru governments? Good question. Okay, so how do we, how do we measure popularity? Do we measure it by uh, winning elections? Well, the Congress government won a lot of elections, but India had a British, still has a British parliamentary system, where, uh, which is a first-past-the-post system, which means that you don't have to gain a majority of votes to actually win a, a vast majority of seats. And that is the case in the 1950s, uh, and 60s in India's election. So the Congress party is the largest party uh, and it does uh, it does get the most votes all the way through the 40s and 50s except in one state in Kerala. In the South in 1957, it, it, the Congress party is not the largest party there, um, but it always gets below 50% of the vote across the nation. What other measures do you have? You might look at, so one of the reasons that Nehru is seen as the architect of India is that he personally was very, very popular. And so you could look at the election rallies that they held and see that hundreds of thousands of people would come to hear Nehru speak uh, whenever he was campaigning for election. So was the Congress government popular? It didn't have a viable rival at the time. And so, yes, with an asterisk. And a final question is a question about memory. How is this Nehruvian era remembered in India today? Nehru and the Nehru era are the subject of intense debate 
in India today. Because if we attribute to him setting up all the foundations and building independent India, if we see him as the architect, I disagree with that. Um, I think there are many more interesting architects, genuine architects, and also interesting figures who, who helped build India in, in, in smaller ways. But if, um, if the general idea is that Nehru was the architect, then the question, uh, and the question is, did he set India on the right path? Now, buildings don't really travel anywhere so the architectural metaphor kind of dies when you uh when you when you kill it in that way um so did did Nehru set india up in the right foundation and there are a, a diminishing number of people who think Nehru was right on most things the first thing that they think he was wrong about was the economy and socialism uh, because in the 90s india started opening up socialism is associated with a lot of red tape for industry um, and in the 1990s India started rolling back these, this red tape in a kind of neoliberal effort to open its economy um, and so India's economy has grown and has grown at a greater rate since they started doing that uh, and so people have then looked to Nehru and the way he set up some controls or tried to set he and the planners tried to set up some controls on India, Indian industry and said well that was a mistake well, one thing that you have seen with, that we haven't really covered is that the other aspect of Indian socialism was not nationalization, but national participation. So what they asked everyone to do was to chip in uh, and to participate and to, for example, build their own schools and build their own wells and build their own roads. And if everybody together built these things, this was the idea of Indian socialism at the time, if everyone together built them, then everyone would get the benefits of them. I like to think of this as a socialism of austerity or a socialism, a self-help socialism. Self-help socialism stopped Indian inequality from getting so much worse. So it didn't, it didn't solve the problem of inequality in India. In fact, it reinforced inequalities in some ways because, um, for example, if in a village they wanted to build a road, well, lower cost people would do the manual labor and higher cost people might contribute a bit of money. And so self-help socialism reinforced many of India's hierarchies and it didn't, didn't uh, unpick India's inequalities, but it did hold back the forces that drive inequality more broadly. So since 1990, as India has opened up and they've stopped doing self-help socialism and they've dropped the idea that everybody should be working together towards the same end, India's economy has grown but so has its inequality, massively. So that's the first legacy that's been, was, that was to be reconsidered um, about Nehru's rule. This was Dr. Taylor Sherman, and this was Our Histories. Thank you for listening.